You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. As you know, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on this podcast. In addition, I have an advanced degree in geology, aka rocks, where absolutely nothing is alive. And that makes me perfectly qualified to talk about medicine and vaccines. Not. The reality is that I don't claim to be an expert in medicine, and since that's the focus of today's story, I apologize in advance if I make some minor misstatements regarding the science. Now, since vaccines have been in the news quite a bit, and I'm about to get my first COVID shot shortly, in fact, one week from today, it got me thinking about some of the more obscure stories that I knew about vaccines. I've chosen a story from the early days of vaccinations, and I'm hoping you'll find great interest in what I'm about to tell you. This medical tragedy played an essential part in the establishment of federal regulations here within the United States that ensures the safety of the vaccines that we use today. And I should point out that this is not meant to be a lesson on avoiding vaccines. I don't want to do that. It's simply a story of how, even when the greatest of precautions are taken, sometimes things can go horribly wrong. Today, it's estimated that 3.9% of children will die globally before the age of 5. That works out to about 15,000 children dying every single day. That's a lot of sadness worldwide. Yet, it's a giant tenfold improvement over the child mortality rate of 1,800. Back then, an estimated 40% of all children did not survive to their fifth birthday. And one can make a long list of all the reasons why the childhood mortality rate was so high back then, but let's just focus on one of them, diphtheria. Nearly unheard of here in the United States today, it was one of the leading killers of children prior to the 20th century. Named after the bacterium that causes it, Carinobacterium diphtheriae, it is typically transmitted from person to person by respiratory droplets, you know, sneezing and coughing and so on. Now, some of the symptoms of diphtheria seem fairly common, you know, like the flu, a sore throat, fever, loss of appetite, and so on. Yet diphtheria attacks its victims in two ways. First, the bacteria produces a toxin that creates a thick gray pseudomembrane that most notably coats the back of the throat, which then makes it incredibly difficult to breathe. And if the patient didn't suffocate, the toxin could also produce heart failure and paralysis. 
In other words, there was truly little that a 19th century doctor could do to help those who were infected. Estimates vary, but the mortality rate for those diagnosed with diphtheria was most likely more than 40%. Two scientists working independently, that's Emile von Behring in Germany and Emile Roux in France, they developed the first diphtheria antitoxins. And the idea was fairly straightforward. You inject an animal with the diphtheria bacteria, and you let their immune systems work to produce antibodies, which would then be extracted, purified, and finally injected into a human. Of course, to produce a lot of antitoxin, a lot of blood is needed, so you're not going to use mice or rats to do this. So tests were done on cows and donkeys, but it was found that horses were least affected by the diphtheria injection. They typically only exhibited a low-grade fever. This diphtheria antitoxin was viewed as a modern miracle. And in an age before automobiles, it was easy to acquire horses that were either injured or too old to be of much use. And instead of putting them down, it made sense for cities like New York and St. Louis to begin using these horses to produce a diphtheria antitoxin. Fast forward to October 18th of 1901. That's when Mrs. Mary Keenan took all four of her children to the St. Louis City Hospital because two of them were incredibly sick. The two children were diagnosed with diphtheria and they were given the antitoxin. And, as was customary at the time, her other two children were given it as a preventative. Initially, everything seemed to be going well. The antitoxin appeared to be doing its job as the diphtheria symptoms began to subside in the children. But then something peculiar happened. Five-year-old Veronica Keenan, who for some reason was referred to as Vernie O'Neill in the press initially, she became increasingly ill. She would pass away on Saturday, October 26, 1901. Now you're probably wondering what's so odd about that. You know, she had diphtheria and sadly she didn't recover. Well, it turns out Veronica was one of the two Keenan children given the antitoxin as a preventative and had never exhibited any diphtheria symptoms. Her death certificate states that the cause of death was spinal meningitis, although there were some signs of tetanus or lockjaw. Dr. H.L. Niedert, who was the superintendent of the hospital, told the press, quote, I believe that the meningitis was merely coincident that would have developed had she been at home. Some of the symptoms did look like tetanus. If the toxin caused tetanus in this instance, why is it not done so in others, for we've administered it to many patients? Two days after Veronica's passing, five-year-old Bessie Baker would also die from lockjaw. Then, two days after that, Bessie's four-year-old sister, Viola May, would also die from tetanus. Their two-year-old brother, Frankie, also exhibited symptoms of lockjaw, although he would survive. Not only that, but all three of the Baker children had developed tetanus shortly after receiving injections of the diphtheria antitoxin. Dr. R.C. Harris, who had treated the children, stated, quote, I was called in on October 19th by Mrs. Baker to attend to her daughter, Bessie, who was suffering from a severe case of diphtheria. I injected the usual quantity of the antitoxin into the little girl. As a precautionary measure frequently adopted in such cases, I also injected a quantity of the antitoxin into the two smaller children as immunizing doses. 
In three or four days, a market improvement was apparent in the case of the little girl, Bessie, and I concluded that she was out of danger and would soon be entirely well, just as other patients became who I treated in similar fashion. But about four days later, that was last Sunday, I was hurriedly called to Mrs. Baker's home over the confectionery. There I found the little girl was suffering from tetanus. I could do nothing for her. The poison was injected so thoroughly into her system that she was beyond medical aid. She died at noon Monday. Before Bessie died, the second child may develop symptoms of the terrible disease. I was called there again but could do nothing. She lingered until Tuesday night at midnight. I called there again Wednesday morning and found that the third child had also developed symptoms of the disease. I fear that she will die too as her condition is apparently very critical. A little side note here. It's unclear why Dr. Harris referred to the third child as female since the same exact article states that the boy was named Frankie, which I was able to confirm. Now, this is a common problem in researching this particular story. Many of the names, dates, and ages, well, they're just plain wrong. Anyway, back to the story. Things would only get worse from here. By the time the story broke in the press on October 30th of 1901, three more of Mary Keenan's children had developed lockjaw and it was believed that all would soon die. The health department immediately began an investigation as to what could have gone wrong. The city had recently provided 63 doctors with 256 doses of the antitoxin. A number of doctors reported excellent results with absolutely no signs of tetanus. So the initial belief was that the physicians who had used the suspect serum had used instruments that had not been properly sterilized. Yet in a precautionary move, the Board of Health announced that they provide the tetanus antitoxin free of charge to any patient who had recently received the diphtheria antitoxin. Then, on November 1st, the city issued a recall and announced that they would no longer be in the business of manufacturing the diphtheria antitoxin. That same day, four more children passed away. They were two-year-old Joe Novak, four-year-old Etty Simon, four-year-old Isaac Stein, and seven-year-old Agnes Adele Keenan, the second in the Keenan family to die. As you can imagine, this is an incredibly scary time for the parents around the city. Doctors raced to give the tetanus antiserum to those who received the suspect diphtheria vaccine, but it was too late for others. And then doctors began to re-examine the recent deaths of other children to determine if they had died from tetanus. This added two more children to the growing list. First, it was three-year-old Nettie Cameron, whose two other siblings also developed lockjaw symptoms but luckily survived. Second was four-year-old Julius Citron, whose nine-year-old brother Morris had died just five weeks earlier after being hit by a streetcar. But this wasn't the end of the nightmare. There were numerous reports of children being near death around the city. It's kind of morbid, but the press reported daily those who were near death and they kept a running tally each day of the deceased. On November 2nd, 8-year-old Flora Fouris passed away. Hospital Superintendent Dr. Nieder described the futile attempt to save her life. Quote, In her case, we injected antitoxin into the ventricles of the brain. This was done by reason of the late theory that injecting antitoxin into the nerve cells might save the life. The child died, however. On the day that Flora died, it was revealed in the press that 10-year-old Jacob Centuria had passed away two days prior. 
His death certificate described the cause of death as, quote, cause unknown at present. Four-year-old Emma Ernst would be the next to pass away on November 3rd. As sad as this was, doctors were able to offer a glimmer of hope. Based on the known period of incubation for the tetanus toxin, they estimated there'd be no new tetanus cases after Thursday, November 7th. That was four days later. Yet there still were a number of children already suffering, and it was feared that at least several more would die. As I'm throwing all these names around, the one family we lost track of during the story is the Keenan family, you know, the one who had four children with the tetanus infections. Well, the two surviving Keenan children continued to suffer greatly. Sadly, 10-year-old Mamie, whose real name was Marie, passed away on November 5th of 1901. And while her father and his two sisters were burying Mamie at Bellafontaine Cemetery, Mrs. Keenan stayed home to care for their only surviving child, Chester. And he courageously battled the effects of tetanus for two weeks, and he miraculously survived. In total, 13 children had died from tetanus after receiving the diphtheria antitoxin, with Veronica Keenan having been the first identified, and Mamie Keenan was the last. But what caused all of this? The entire manufacture of the diphtheria antitoxin in St. Louis was done under the charge of Dr. Amandra Vold, who was the city's bacteriologist. And he did nearly all the work himself, everything from the initial injection of the diphtheria into the horses, through the collection of the serum, to its purifying, and finally its distribution and record-keeping. Now, a few tasks like testing and bottling were done by others, but it really was mostly Dr. Revolt's baby. Now, there was one thing that investigators were certain of. All of the children who had developed what was believed to have been tetanus, they still weren't sure, all of the children had received doses drawn within a very short period of time from the same horse, a horse named Jim. Dr. Max C. Starkloff, the St. Louis Health Commissioner, stated, quote, He was a bay horse, 16 hands high, weighed over 1,600 pounds, and named Jim. Originally, he was an ambulance horse, had been injured in the shoulder, and was turned over to me by Dr. Jordan, chief dispensary physician, in 1898. He has been under treatment for the production of diphtheria antitoxin for nearly three years, has been bled a number of times, and has furnished over 30 quarts of diphtheretic antitoxin. In fact, the greater part of the antitoxin distributed by the health department during the years 1900 and 1901 came from this horse. There was one really big problem with Jim. He was no longer alive. Dr. Revolt explained, quote, Come October 21st to 26th, we ran out of serum. On October 18th, Mr. Taylor called my attention to the fact that our serum was running low and that an unusual demand was being made for it. I gave instruction that not more than one bottle would be given to any applicant until a new lot of serum could be obtained. On September 22nd, I again injected Jim with 300 cubic centimeters of strong diphtheria toxin, and on September 30, bled him, taking 8,000 units of blood. On October 2nd, I was notified by telephone that Jim was sick, and Dr. Ellis was sent out to see him. I assume Dr. Ellis was the veterinarian. He pronounced the horse sick with tetanus and ordered him killed. So could that be the cause of death for all these children? Dr. Vold did not think so. First, he explained that he'd been in Chicago and he received that call, 
And upon his return, Mr. Taylor and he poured all the serum that had recently been drawn from Jim down the sink. Second, the serum that had been previously drawn from Jim and distributed around the city had been purified and carefully sterilized. In addition, samples were taken from each batch of diphtheria antitoxin that was produced, and it was tested on guinea pigs. If tetanus had been present, the guinea pigs would have certainly died. Dr. Revolt was at a loss to explain where in the tightly controlled and multi-step processing of the serum that tetanus could have been introduced. Now, it should be pointed out that tetanus wasn't unheard of in horses used in the production of diphtheria antitoxin. Dr. Revolt wrote, quote, It is a well-known fact that horses undergoing treatment for the production of diphtheria antitoxin are highly susceptible to infection with bacillus of tetanus. We have lost six antitoxin horses with tetanus since 1895. Now, it was possible to immunize a horse against tetanus at the time, but this wasn't done because it was thought sufficient to test the antitoxin on the guinea pigs. One of the first things that needed to be determined was if, in fact, the children did die of tetanus. But this would require testing on guinea pigs, which the city had an unusual shortage of at the moment. It was explained that they received a shipment of 50 guinea pigs earlier, but they were all double the size that were required for testing. So a new batch of guinea pigs was ordered from a breeder in Philadelphia. But keep in mind, these are the days before overnight shipping, so it took a long time to get those guinea pigs to St. Louis. A big concern among health officials was that the people would now fear injection with the antitoxin, and of course there'd be an increase in deaths from diphtheria. Dr. H.N. Chapman of the Board of Health publicly expressed his concern, quote, The really gravest danger now is that people will become afraid to permit the use of antitoxin. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, antitoxin has saved hundreds of lives in the city, and when properly prepared, is one of the safest things any physician can use. There is no more danger from antitoxin than from any drug prescribed by a physician. Luckily, officials did not see an increase in the number of deaths while this was all unfolding. Parents continued to allow their children to receive the antitoxin. Unfortunately, this wasn't true in Chicago, however. By the end of November 1901, after seeing what had happened in St. Louis, vaccine hesitancy caused a one-third increase in the diphtheria mortality rate. On November 8, 1901, bacteriologist C.A. Snodgrass was the first to release the results of his tests. He found absolutely no tetanus bacilli in any of the samples he had tested. To which Dr. Revolt commented, quote, I contended all along that the serum contained no germs. Yet it was quickly pointed out by other experts that Snodgrass had only tested for the bacilli, not for the presence of the potent tetanus toxin, which is among the world's most deadly of toxins. Then, after reviewing the data obtained by a number of experts working independently and interviewing nearly 100 witnesses, the coroner issued his report on November 18th. While it didn't place blame on any one individual, it held the health department responsible for the deaths of seven of the children by tetanus. Now, I should point out they did not test all the children right away. It concluded that the tainted antitoxin drawn from Jim had somehow been mislabeled and, at least in part, distributed to doctors around the city. You see, blood had been drawn from Jim on a nearly monthly basis. The batch of NS serum originally produced on August 24th was proven to be non-toxic. 
The next batch, labeled September 30th, had been drawn one day prior to Jim's tetanus diagnosis and was supposedly never distributed. They said they destroyed it. Yet some of the September 30th samples had somehow been mislabeled as August 24th and they were supplied to doctors. And this was proven by the fact that all of the tainted samples, whether they be dated August 24th or September 30th, they were identical in every way. That includes potency, specific gravity, toxicity, spectral analysis, and so on. They did a lot of tests to prove they were identical. Dr. Revolt expressed puzzlement in these findings, quote, How those bacteriologists arrived at their conclusion that the diphtheria antitoxin drawn on September 30 was distributed for use is more than I can understand. This opinion is directly at variance with every statement I have made regarding the point. I know that the serum of September 30 was destroyed without being tested. I do not believe that any of the serum could have possibly been placed in small bottles and distributed without my knowledge. Yet the science was clear. Somehow that tainted serum had wound up being injected in those innocent children. Meanwhile, a similar situation had been developing in Camden, New Jersey. In October 1901, the Camden School Board decided to vaccinate their entire student body against smallpox, not diphtheria. By the end of the month, an estimated 5,000 students had been inoculated. But then, on November 1st, 16-year-old William Brower died from tetanus, That was 19 days after having received the smallpox vaccine at school. Soon, eight additional students would die. Then, five others would die of tetanus in Philadelphia. They had received the same smallpox vaccine. But instead of placing blame on the vaccine, which was believed to have been safe, the cause was attributed to neglect on the part of the parents. Basically, all the infected children were poor and stereotypically believed to live in dirty homes. So it was concluded that the parents had exposed their children to unsanitary conditions, resulting in exposure to the tetanus toxin. It was also learned that a similar tragedy had occurred in Italy in January of 1901, that same year. Twelve people died from tetanus after receiving the diphtheria antitoxin. Yet investigators there failed to make the connection between the serum and the tetanus fatalities. But this wasn't the case in St. Louis. It was clear that all the tetanus infections could be traced right back to Jim the horse. And now that the coroner had submitted his formal report, the St. Louis Board of Health opened an inquiry on where to lay blame. While Dr. Revold remained unwavering in his testimony, the story that two of his assistants told changed. On November 30th of 1901, Dr. Martin Schmidt, he was the assistant city bacteriologist, he revealed for the first time that he had never tested the last batch of antitoxin derived from Jim due to the fact that they didn't have any guinea pigs to test on. Quote, The infected diphtheria antitoxin, which killed several St. Louis children, was not tested before its distribution on guinea pigs by the city bacteriological department. The serum was entrusted to Henry R. Taylor, a Negro janitor in the city chemist's office, and he had charge of the supply drawn on August 24, and also that taken from the horse a month later. Some of the bottles containing the serum were not labeled, and Taylor was the only person who could distinguish them. Other bottles contained two labels, and Taylor was about the only one who could tell which was the correct one. Dr. Schmidt continued, I did not care to tell all I knew at the original inquest because Dr. Revolt is a personal friend of mine 
and for the further reason I did not want to show disloyalty to the department. Then, on December 26, it was Henry Taylor's turn to spill the beans. He revealed that they had not destroyed the supposed tainted serum until after it was publicly reported that children may have died from it. Quote, The serum of September 30 was not destroyed on October 11, and the serum of September 30 did go out. Basically, the supply of diphtheria and itoxin had become depleted in early October, and he had distributed 18 bottles of the tainted serum because, at the time, he didn't believe that it was, quote, bad enough to kill children. Dr. Revolt disagreed with Henry Taylor's claim, quote, The serum was destroyed on October 11. I have my book in which I made a note. I can't understand why the man made such a statement. On February 12, 1902, the Board of Health officially held Dr. Revolt responsible for the deaths of all 13 children. They then voted to terminate the employment of both Dr. Revolt and Henry Taylor. Now, Dr. Revolt had other employment in both private practice and in the medical department at Washington University, so he could afford the loss of this appointment. He expressed greater concern for Henry Taylor, however. Quote, If I had been here, that fearful mistake would not have happened. The Board of Health should have had a trained assistant for me to leave in charge. Taylor, a man of 65, honest and faithful, was not supposed to be competent to look after the professional affairs of the office. He was simply a good servant, an old soldier, and this discharge will leave him in hard lines. On May 12, 1902, Dr. Revold resigned from the faculty at Washington University. His intent was to spend a year studying in Berlin before moving on to other cities. But based on newspaper headlines over the years, it doesn't appear that this ever happened, that he really didn't go overseas except for short periods. Also, it appears that the tainted diphtheria vaccine had no lasting effect on his career. He was unanimously chosen to be the president of the St. Louis Medical Society in 1926, and he gained a reputation as one of the world's foremost bacteriologists. His death on October 26 of 1942 at the age of 83 was front-page news in St. Louis, but there was not a single mention of that diphtheria incident. As for monetary compensation for the deaths of the 13 children, I really can't tell you much. There wasn't much in the newspapers. I did do some searching for a while, but I didn't find much. I can tell you that it was ruled that the city could not be held responsible for what had happened. So then they filed lawsuits against those individuals that were responsible, but little was mentioned in the press. I did find one article where a jury rendered a verdict against Dr. Revold, and they awarded $1,000, about $30,000 today, to Jacob Ernst for the death of his daughter, Emma. Then Dr. Revold appealed the case, and that was the last story I could find. I'm sure if I spent hours, I could probably find more, but that's all I could find. Um, my guess is that most people didn't get much, if anything. Now, as tragic as the story was, there was one good thing that came from it. In 1902, the United States Congress passed the Biologist Control Act to regulate, inspect, and license anyone or any company involved in the production of biologic products such as vaccines. Today, that's all handled by the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, which is part of the FDA. Now, my guess is they're quite busy right now monitoring the safety of the various COVID-19 vaccines, you know, as they roll out. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. They're marvelous, 
I love that grand new flavor. So wholesome and good, I'm glad the children ask for them often. Now, there's something I really like. Boy, what flavor. Hey, Mom, can I have some more? What's all the excitement about? Say, friends, haven't you heard? The whole town's talking about the new Manischewitz American Mussels. They're new in size, new in flavor, and what a flavor it is. An exciting, inviting new taste sensation. A friendly, satisfying taste and goodness that beats anything you've ever tried. That's why Manischewitz American Mussels have won thousands of enthusiastic friends overnight. You'll love them, too. You'll enjoy the crunchy oven freshness of Manischewitz American Mussels. You'll like their wholesome, hearty taste. And what's more, you'll enjoy serving these crisp, new mussels to your family, to friends and guests. Because everyone goes for Manischewitz American Mussels from the very first bite. So promise yourself to try them tomorrow. Ask your grocer for Manischewitz American Mussels in the cellophane wrap package with a red, white, and blue label and enjoy them every day. There is nothing that quite hits the spot so. The family will like it, I like so. When they sit to eat, just give them this treat. Manischewitz American Mussels. M-A-N-I-S-C. I know the sound on that wasn't very good, but with Passover beginning this Sunday, it seemed like a good time to play that commercial from Manischewitz Matzah. It's from the November 24th, 1940 broadcast of Yiddish Melodies in Swing. Yiddish Swing was a merging of swing music with traditional European Jewish klezmer music. This fusion style was kicked off in 1938 when the Andrews sisters had a big hit with Bamir Bishushain. In an effort to capitalize on the success of that song, the bigwigs at WHN in New York decided to create an entire weekly program dedicated to this style of music. Amazingly, the show long outlived swing music, and it ran for nearly two decades. But sadly, only 20 episodes are known to exist today. As for Manischewitz, it's the world's largest manufacturer of matzah, which is an unleavened bread. It kind of looks like a square piece of cardboard that has been cooked, I'm not kidding. But if nothing else, it tastes a lot better than cardboard. Now, Manischewitz, the company, it was started by Rabbi Dove Bear Manischewitz in 1888 in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it's since expanded into a wide range of kosher products. Now, I personally haven't had a piece of matzah in years, but I must admit that I really liked it with cream cheese on top when I was a kid. And I'm good for a few pieces of matzah, but I quickly get bored with it after a few days, and I could never finish an entire box by myself, so I just don't bother to buy it anymore. So here's a question for you. In what year was the aerosol spray paint can invented? Now, you may not know the exact answer, so see if you can guesstimate it within, you know, say five years one way or the other. Well, hang around for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, Sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. In other news, here are three stories that have absolutely nothing in common. I simply selected them because there was something quirky about each one. Our first story dates to February 9th of 1896, when the president of the Board of Commissioners who ran the New York City Police Department declared war on the banana skin. He just happened to be the future United States President Theodore Roosevelt, and he served in that role from 1895 to 1897. He summoned the captains, sergeants, and roundsmen from a number of police precincts and made it clear to them they had to do something regarding the prevalence of banana peels on the streets of the city's east side. In particular, he pointed out that people tended to slip on banana peels and then they fall with terrific force down onto the street. But his complaint wasn't limited to banana peels. He requested that the police work to keep the streets clear of apple and potato skins and similar produce byproducts. This followed a complaint from Colonel George E. Waring Jr., who was hired by the city in 1895 to deal with its intolerable sanitary conditions. You see, the streets were covered in horse manure and urine, there were carcasses of horses everywhere, and the garbage was piled knee-deep on the streets. So through both regulation and an army of street cleaners, Waring was able to get the streets clean within a year, and he wanted to keep it that way. Now, there already was a law in the books to deal with this. It read in part, quote, any part or portion of any fruit or vegetable or other substances which, when stepped upon by any person, is liable to cause or does cause him or her to slip or fall, shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor. Now, the fine for violating this law ranged between $1 and $5, which really was quite significant in the late 1800s. Even worse, one could receive between 1 and 10 days in jail. The law also required every single vendor who sold produce to post in big letters a copy of this ordinance. Of course, Roosevelt realized that the law was difficult to enforce, but he requested that the officers do their very best in their attempt to do so. 
And this is probably a good place to put in a shameless plug for my new book, The Flip Side of History. In there, I've included a story on the smoking of banana peels to get high. It's actually a funny story, and it includes some scientific research that was done at the time, plus the concerns that lawmakers had on you know, how to create laws to prevent people from smoking banana peels. Okay, moving on. Our next story is from April 20th of 1946, when it was announced that New York State Governor Thomas E. Dewey signed into law a measure that forbid, quote, birth control leases. This resulted from a number of landlords across the state, including a clause in their tenant's lease that required them to remain childless and not bear any children. The bill had been introduced by Assemblyman Louis Olaf, and it made violation of this law a misdemeanor for either the owner or the operator of any dwelling who attempted to enforce such a clause. Of course, this relieved the fear of all the couples across the state who faced losing a roof over their heads simply because they chose to have a child. Finally, our last story for today took place on September 14th of 1972 in Cardiff, Wales. It was reported that firemen had spent several days putting out a fire on the 12,000-ton Swiss vessel Casarate. You see, timbers stacked in the upper holds of the ship had caught fire 25 days earlier while it was at sea, and the crew was able to keep it under control until they were able to get to port. And when the ship docked in Wales, firemen moved in, and they, of course, squelched the flames. But there was one really big problem. The lower holds of the ship held 1,500 tons of tapioca, and the water used to put out the fire above just seeped down and the tapioca began to swell. In addition, the heat from the fire began to cook the tapioca, so the ship basically became one gigantic steam oven, and firefighters were concerned that the pressure of the swollen tapioca could burst the ship's steel plates, and of course then the ship would sink. Once the smoldering lumber could be removed, the plan was to unload the tapioca into trucks and then, of course, haul it off for disposal. One estimate said that there was enough tapioca to fill 500 trucks, although another had an estimate of 200 truckloads. Either way, that's a lot of tapioca. Well, luckily, the pressure began to subside and the decision was made to sail the ship for Rotterdam. That was its original destination and, of course, let the Dutch deal with the problem. So early in the podcast, I asked you when the first aerosol spray paint can was invented. Did you know? Well, it started in Sycamore, Illinois, back in 1949. Ed Seymour owned a paint company there, and he was in search of an easy way to apply his aluminum coating to steam radiators. Now, you probably have seen those big old steam radiators. They are not flat, and they're not easy to paint. So his wife, Bonnie, suggested that he create some sort of spray gun, you know, like those they use for insecticides or deodorizers and so on. And what he came up with was a can filled with paint and an aerosol propellant that was topped with a little spray head at the top. And of course, the paint spray can was born. He received the patent for his invention in 1951. While he had only intended to use his invention to show clients how the aluminum paint would appear when it was applied, he quickly realized that there was more interest in the paint can than there was in the paint itself. So he borrowed a few thousand dollars from a bank, and it just took off from there. The company that Seymour started, that Seymour of Sycamore, is still around, and they produce paints for the industrial, automotive, marine, and private label markets. 
Here in the United States, the big guys, you know, Rustoleum and Krylon, control most of the homeowner market. So that's what you'll find when you go into a hardware store. You're not going to find probably paint by Seymour of Sycamore. Well, that brings the 147th episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I hope that you found the St. Louis diphtheria antitoxin story interesting. Honestly, I've avoided doing that story for a number of years, mainly because there were so many inconsistencies in the reporting at the time. I just couldn't make heads or tails of some of the uh, details. It really was one of the tougher stories to pull together. And with the help mostly of Ancestry uh, and getting all the death certificates and so on, I was able to create a spreadsheet and figure out who died and what their real names were and so on. Oddly, I had 14 deaths on my list, not the 13 that every other source refers to. But in the end, I opted to leave out the 14th possible victim simply because there were inconsistencies in the information And it left me with more questions than I had answers. So I wasn't sure if that person really was a victim or not. But if you do notice any minor errors in the story, and there's always minor errors when you uh, put together such a complicated story, just let me know and I'll try and fix it. I do want to mention that I've relaunched my website, uselessinformation.org, after about six weeks of moving all the content from one program into another. I'm now using something called Elementor, which is a lot easier to use. Anyway... There were so many formatting errors that I had no choice but to go back through all 300-plus stories and manually reformat them, not just the text, but uh, re-putting the images in and so on. So be sure to check it out. That's uselessinformation.org. I do believe I have every script going back to podcast number 38 now on the website. and I recorded that one way back in 2010. And there are photos and so on that go with those stories. And over time, I'll put in the remainder of the episodes. But as I go farther and farther back in time, I'm finding it harder to find the old scripts um, that just, you know, I had different programs I used, different computers, and so on. Uh, But I'm slowly pulling it together. Just a reminder to subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast. And you can do it through whichever podcast platform you use, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeart, Pandora, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn. Those are the biggies that come to mind, but I know there are many other smaller platforms out there that have the podcast. Anyway, take care, everyone, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.